Hello, Nicola Monroe. Hello, good morning. So today we both are in Dresden. You were invited to give the Gauss lecture here in Dresden yesterday, which was on the topic of the Banach-Tarski paradox. And I wanted to take the opportunity to speak with you about the things which you presented yesterday in the lecture, because I really found it fascinating how you found, I don't want to say easy, but things where one can follow the ideas, uh, which explain uh, why situations can be paradoxical and how to overcome the paradox. And one of the um, things I learned from your lecture, which I kind of knew vaguely, but didn't really think about it because it's not in my field, is that there is really a big difference if you want to geometrically rearrange things in two dimensions, so in a plane, or in three dimensions, or even more dimensions. So maybe a good start would be to see uh, what's happening if you want to rearrange things in two dimensions. So we can start maybe with, with a game. So it's the game of Tangram. Mm -hmm. It's, an, it's an, old, uh, an old Chinese game that I think almost everybody knows. You have a black square, and uh, it consists of seven pieces, triangles, squares. You have to rearrange these seven pieces to try to get another shape, not the square. One nice example that I showed yesterday was you can try to get a cat. Mm -hmm. Or in fact, you can try to get almost any animal by rearranging these triangles, and uh, it really looks like a, like a Chinese shadow. Now, of course, you will not get a very nice-looking cat. It will be a cat made out of triangles and squares, so pointy cat with only seven pieces. Kind of an abstract cat. <laughs> exactly, a, a cat for mathematicians. Yes. So, but it's, it looks very much like origami, but it's completely flat. Mm -hmm. Now, you can imagine if you cut your square, if you could make your own game, if you cut a square not just in seven pieces, but maybe in a thousand little pieces, you could make a much nicer-looking cat. In fact, if you cut a square in, uh, in a few million little pixels then you can really make a, a very realistic cat like on the screen of a computer. So that's the classic game of, game of Tangram, and that's the two-dimensional version. Now, we can try to play the same game in three dimensions. So then you don't start with a square and try to make a flat, pointy, triangular cat, but you'd start with a, with a cube. So that's the three-dimensional square. It would be a, a nice block, a cube, like a block of bronze, if you're a sculptor. And then you chop it again into little pieces, little cubes, maybe little other shapes, maybe little tet tetrahedra or mm -hmm. little chunks of bronze. You can move them around again, put them together, and you get some kind of cat again. It's like if, if you start with, you try to make a cat out of Lego, out of uh, Lego stones, then you get a nice cat, a little bit, uh, it doesn't, it looks still a bit geometrical with angles and so on, it's not a real cat. But here again, you can imagine that If you cut this into million little pieces and you really take, for instance, almost every little atom of, of bronze, then you can make a very realistic sculpture of a cat. So that's, that's the traditional way of uh, doing tangram, rearranging things. And you don't see any difference here between dimension two, the flat cat, and dimension three. The big surprise comes that, and that is what my lecture was about, that we know now for almost 100 years, or I think even 102 years, we know that you can start with a block of, uh, of bronze of one kilo. And uh, if geometrically you cut it into tiny little pieces, actually it's enough to cut into five pieces. Then if you start with a nice ball of one kilo of bronze, you cut into five pieces and you can get two balls of the same size. So that's the paradox. Yes, because the thing is that with the tangram, of course, um, the 
area in the two-dimensional tangram and the volume in the three-dimensional tangram is always something which um, is preserved under all rearrangements. And so the idea is that um, the volume should always be preserved. Exactly. So here you're already jumping jumping ahead of me because indeed, if I, I mean, um, when I say it's a paradox, it's surprising that out of one ball of uh, you know, one meter diameter of bronze or marble or gold, we get two balls of the same size. Um, it sounds like a it magician's sounds trick, yes. Right? It sounds impossible or yeah. it sounds too good to be true because yeah. we, we just get more mass out of... Um, but the real question for me is not so much... Um, oh, I mean, I think the real question for me is why are we surprised by that? So what does it tell about ourselves? when When I tell this paradox to somebody who never heard about it, Usually they tell me, no, no, it's not possible. Or maybe they tell me, well, if it's so easy, why don't you do it for me? And of course I can't do it for you. But, um, but they never ask, they never, they never ask themselves, wait a second, why do I think that it's not possible? What makes me believe that this doesn't work? And, uh, as you said immediately, the, the reason why people think it doesn't work is that people have a very precise idea, or they think they have a very precise idea of the concept of mass or volume. And this idea they have would be violated by such a construction. They would say, there's no such thing, because I start with one kilo of gold or one kilo of something, and then I get two kilos. So this shouldn't be possible. And so the goal of my lecture was to try to explore why this shouldn't be possible and what it tells us about our, our, our beliefs about this notion of volume. Yeah. In a way, it's just that we have a model of the real, real world in our head, And we take the model for the real world. So just this point where we see that we just have an, an idea uh, and this idea is not the real thing. Um, this is sometimes not so easy to, to detect in oneself. Absolutely. And, and, and we have to realize that this, this happened very often in the past with much less surprising cases, perhaps, but also some very surprising. Like when Einstein, for instance, made us realize that everything we thought we knew about time and distance or time and space was in fact not quite true mm -hmm. that for everyday life it's true that time and space behave like we always thought it does but at, at very high energies or high speeds or long times or long distances things are much different I would not even say more complicated but just much more surprising and our intuition of time and space is completely wrong if we go outside of our comfort zone so the Banachtarsky paradox which is not quite as old as the as relativity theory, but also 102 years old. This paradox shows us that when we get outside of our comfort zone for size or weight or volume, then again, our intuition is actually completely wrong. Mm. Yes. Um, why does the concept of the volume which we have, let's say just volume, because I'm just at the moment, my, in my head I have a three-dimensional model, uh, doesn't really help us uh, to understand what's happening there. I think to answer this question, we first have to try to see what is our concept of volume because um, we use it every day, but I think we're too lazy to really sit back and contemplate what, what we believe about the volume, what are the properties that it should satisfy. And in a nutshell, I can tell you that the answer is, in a nutshell, is just that we are too optimistic. <laughs> that But that's sometimes a good thing. <laughs> exactly. So we trust, that, we trust that we know all kind of nice properties of the volume. And um, what Felix Hausdorff did in 1914, so Felix Hausdorff is the German mathematician who, who had the first idea for what we call now the Banachtarsky paradox. 
What Hausdorff did is he looked at these axioms that we have for volume. And uh, for instance, one of the axioms is, well, the volume of uh, some object should not depend of where this object is located in space. Sounds really sound. Yes. That sounds, uh, it's impossible to, to, to live without this axiom. Yeah. And another axiom that we have in mind is, well, if I cut my object into two pieces, maybe there's a big piece and a small piece, but both together, the sum of the volumes should be what I started with. That's also very reasonable. That's, that's what volume should be. And in fact, it's basically the only two properties that, that, um, that we need to consider for this volume. There's a hidden property that we often don't really think about, and that's the fact that the volume even makes sense that if you cut a piece out of the bowl, that it even makes sense to define the volume of this piece. And anyway, uh, Hausdorff's, Felix Hausdorff's goal was to prove that there is no volume that satisfies all these properties in dimension three. So he, he constructed a crazy paradox, not for the pleasure. I'm sure he had a lot of pleasure doing it, <laughs> but it wasn't his goal. He didn't like want devil's to... Like advocate, yes. <laughs> exactly. He didn't, want, he didn't want to be just clever and make a pathological example. He wanted to show us that these three things that we believe about volume cannot all be true at the same time. Now, what is remarkable is that they are true at the same time in two dimensions. Mm. So in two dimensions, there's no such paradox. It's really true that you can assign some volume to every piece of a two-dimensional square. And uh, it's not very easy to do, but you can do it. And in three dimensions, you just can't. And that's what the paradox demonstrates. Um, so is there um, a kind of a way to um, understand... Um, from practical considerations, why this is so different in three dimensions? You can, uh, you can understand at least what's, what the source of the difference is. So, and uh, this, is a, this is a beautiful thing. It is something that's it's a little bit of a challenge to explain it on a podcast because it's very visual. <laughs> yes, but, but we will also try put some the... pictures uh, on the website and then maybe it's, this helps to, to I take see. the last step. I see, but <laughs> I think we can even do it um, over the podcast like this. Um, If, if the listener just now tries to imagine what I'm going to say. So the first step is to think not so much about the square or the cube or the cat or the ball. Um, it's not so much a question of the geometry in two or three dimensions. We have to focus on what it means to move the pieces. So that's really where the secret is. When I tell you in the tangram I cut my square into seven pieces, And then I, I move them on the table. You really push them with your hands on the table until you get a cut. The real secret is how are you allowed to move the pieces around? You can, you can push them. You can turn them. Um, strictly speaking, in Tangram, the rules are you're not supposed to flip them over. So you're just allowed to, to move them smoothly on the table. And what happens is that if you do this in three dimensions, the freedom you have to move things in three dimensions is in fact not just a bit bigger because you have one more degree of freedom. In fact, it's qualitatively completely different. And that's what I'm going to try to explain now um, without image. And I think everybody can try to follow that inside her or inside his head. <clears throat> so there are two kinds of motions. You can push something, that's what we call translation. You can glide it without changing the orientation, like a boat that just glides underwater. Or, that's the first kind, the second kind is rotations. You can fix a point and just move everything around. So if you have your, if you have a tangram puzzle, please imagine that you put a nail through a piece and you nail it on the table. You can still turn it around this nail. So these are two kinds of motions. And one thing that we learn in school or that we can 
figure out ourselves is that every motion in actually any dimension can be decomposed as pushing and turning. So translation and rotation. You can always get any kind of complicated transformation. I, I, I like the German language, even though I cannot really speak it on a pod podcast. And in German, there's a term of Schraubung. So it's like screwing something. And that's a very nice motion. You screw, for instance, your, your corkscrew into the cork of a wine bottle. Yeah, because it's turning and moving at the same time. Exactly. You yeah. turn the, 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 into the cork and you move into the cork. So it's complicated this movement to do, but you can just decompose it as rotation and translation. Now, the secret of the difference between dimension two and three is really in the rotation part. So if we look at how things glide, translations, you have one more degree of freedom in three dimensions, but it doesn't change much. Now, if we think about rotations, we will see that there's a huge surprise that appears. And, uh, and perhaps I can try to explain this to, to our listeners. So imagine that you, you turn something in two dimensions. Again, there's a nail somewhere in our, in our table and everything has to turn about the same nail. Now, if you ask me, how can you turn around this nail? You can only turn left or right. Yes. That's it. Maybe you can turn a few degrees to the right, a few degrees to the left, and that's, that's all you have. So everything just depends on the angle. That tells me that if I first turn to the right, say of 10 degrees, and then one to the left, I did nine degrees to the right. Now imagine you get the rules wrong, and you first turn one degree to the left, and then 10 degrees to the right. You still did the same. You still did nine degrees to the right. So whatever you do, the only thing that counts is the total angle of your rotations. It doesn't really matter if you started by going left and then right. The result is the same. So that's very convenient. Okay, that's now the point where everything is different in three dimensions. So you have to imagine, and that's now maybe a little bit more complicated, but you have to imagine that you're in three dimensions and you also have a center that will never move. In fact, you can imagine that you hold in your hand a, a globe, a representation of the Earth, And you can make it turn in any direction, not just on the north-south axis, but um, you can make this, uh, this ball turn in your hands. And you start thinking, okay, I could turn this ball on the north-south axis with 10 degrees or one degree in the other direction. But I could choose another axis. I could draw an axis through the equator somewhere and then turn this globe somehow horizontally. I can really turn it in along any axis with any degree I want. And The thing you have to try to imagine now is what happens if you get the order wrong again. If you turn first in one direction and then in the other, or somebody tries to do the same as you, but he first turns in the other direction. So in my lecture, I actually took a victim from the audience, and uh, I made him go on the scene, and I, I gave him instructions. I told him, well, you're going to, to turn around yourself in 90 degrees to your left, and then you go flat on the floor. It's like breakdancing. He, he ended up with his belly on the floor or with the feet up. And I just gave him instructions. I gave him two instructions. I told him, turn to the left, 90 degree, and then I made him turn. Well, that's a bit hard to explain. In another angle, he was already turning to his left. I made him go on the floor. He did that, and he was lying on the floor. Then we started again. I asked him to do exactly the same dance, but in the other order. First, he had to turn sideways and then on a vertical axis. And he ended up in a completely different position. So I think anybody can try this at home or you can take a book in front of you and you pause the postcasts, you take a book and you turn it first to the left 90 degrees, then another axis. You look how the book looks like, then you go back to starting position and you do it in the opposite direction. It will not be the same result. So this 
small difference that mathematically we call the question of commuting or not commuting. So does it, does it matter if you do things in the wrong order or it does not matter? This small difference is, in fact, a qualitative difference between dimension two and three. The rotation in three dimensions are not just bigger or have one more degree of freedom. That would be quantitative. It's not just bigger. It's qualitatively different. The order in which we perform operations will really impact the end results. Maybe the last example I want to give in that direction, and it's not a motion, but, but try to think that in the morning you first put on your shoes and then your socks. It's not at all the same as if you first put on your socks and then your shoes. That's non-commutativity, and uh, we are not surprised by it for shoes and socks, but maybe we should be a little bit surprised that rotations in three dimensions have this non-commutativity, and in two dimensions, everything is fine. You can do your operation in any order. It doesn't make a difference. That's the root of the paradox. Mm. Yeah, the thing is that um, after going through school and having learned how to measure things, um, everybody has kind of the idea that when I can do mathematics, I know to measure everything I meet. No, it's just a technical question uh, how to get True. the right numbers. True. And then you come to university and you get a course on measure theory and you ask yourself all the time, depending on the lecturer, of course, if uh, there is no motivation, why should we think again about measuring? Right. So I think, you know, this makes me think that there are two, there are two things that people don't like about mathematics or about mathematicians. The first thing people don't like about mathematics is when they're at school because you have a teacher who gives you instructions all the time. And a teacher tells you the area of a triangle is basis times height over two. Learn it and then apply it. Or the teacher tells you the area of a circle is pi times the square of the radius. And you have to learn it and then you have to apply it. And it never ends. So that's what people don't like about mathematics. They give you, they give you orders. They give you instructions all the time. And there are so many formulas about so many shapes. And you have the feeling that it will never end. You have to compute all these things. Now, and this I also don't like. Now, the second thing people don't like about mathematics is when they grow up more and they talk about a mathematician, they talk to a mathematician in university and all of a sudden they start not just telling them what to do and how to do it, the mathematician starts telling them, well, you know, in fact, you cannot really do it. And, and, and then you go from thinking mathematicians give you orders to thinking that mathematicians are useless. So to summarize, um, What happens, it's a pity because it's, uh, measuring sizes is a beautiful subject, but what happens is that some very clever people like Archimedes 2,000 years ago, or a bit more, found ways to compute certain sizes and certain volumes. And it was not easy. It was, it was really an amazing achievement to compute the, the volume of a ball, for instance. It was not easy. Now we learn it in school and we have no explanation given. Maybe in university they gave us some sort of explanation with integrals, But it doesn't really tell us what, what's going on and how this formula was found. Each time you have a shape where you can compute the volume, it's actually an amazing achievement to, to find a solution at all. And <clears throat> maybe after a while, you think you can compute the volume of any shape. But that's not true. Yeah. yeah, because you have the idea you have just certain easy things and you can just combine them in the right way and then you get each complicated thing you want. That's exactly what we do in the first years of university, yeah, yeah. we decompose a shape into tiny pieces. That's what applied mathematicians do too. They, they, they approximate a complicated shape by millions and millions of little pieces that are all little cubes or more complicated things. And then they say, well, if I know the size of the little cube, I should just add everything up. So that's a good idea. 
that's a very good idea, but it doesn't quite work. It is as if you want to find the, the weight of a ball, and what you say is, well, I will count the atom, count all the atoms of the ball and add them up. So that's, that's a good idea. It's, uh, it's not practical, but it's a good idea. But it will not give you the answer for the perfect round shape. So either you want the perfect round shape, then you have to do some kind of infinite limiting procedure, and that's where difficulties can be hidden, or you decide that you don't care about the precise theoretical answer, but you want to have the exact number of atoms, yeah. then you can try to count them, and, uh, and good luck with that. Yeah, it's good if you have a machine counting it, then maybe it works. Maybe. <laughs> Are there <coughs> any uh, serious consequences of this paradox um, where you really see that um, it's not just um, a funny thing, you can consider a surprising thing, which brings us um, to the boundaries of our imagination or our preconceptions. You ask about uh, serious consequences. So, mm. um, Whatever serious is. Right. <laughs> so, so for many people, uh, that would mean other consequences in real life, I yeah. suppose. And, uh, and f but also for, for, for other people, maybe the question is, are there serious intellectual consequences yes. also? I, I can try to answer both questions. So for the first question, you're not going to be surprised if I tell you that nobody has managed to actually duplicate a ball in real life. And uh, one of the reasons is, well, you can go back to counting the atoms. And if you could duplicate the ball, somehow you'd have more atoms at the end than you started with. So that would be surprising. Um, nonetheless, the, some people have questioned whether there are some uh, hidden applications in real life to this paradox. So, for instance, there's a, an intriguing article by Bruno Augenstein about similarities between this paradox and strange phenomena in, in particle physics. Um, I myself, I'm not, uh, I don't claim to be competent to judge, but I myself doubt that really this, this is more than a formal similarity. So I haven't seen yet a direct application in real life of this duplication. But I think that's, that's not the point, because um, as I said before, the reason this was invented was not to try to get two balls out of one ball. It was to show us how we should manipulate the notion of volume. So the serious consequences is, are, you could say, the entire field of measure theory, which, uh, which is now fundamental to, to many, many parts of mathematics and many parts of its application, the whole field of measure theory or probability theory is influenced by, by this paradox in the sense yeah. that this paradox made mathematicians understand how to even construct probability and measures and so on and so on. There, there are few domains of mathematics that are as often used as probability, and they're used in very subtle ways. People who, who use stochastics in, in real-life applications, they need to understand some quite counterintuitive things about the nature of probability. So I think there are very important consequences, and, uh, and that mathematicians and people who apply mathematics use all the time, and these consequences are that we know a little bit better how to use the concept of probability and size, mass, volume. Yeah, I see that. And the thing is that, um, uh, of course, for myself, I can say that it's always nice to see something surprising and then to, to go over this um, kind of wall of knowledge, yes? So mm -hmm. you, you go somehow to a certain point where you think what you think to know Uh, contradict something which you took for granted as well, and what's the reason? 
So is there something which you wrote wrong? Because sometimes we use this to prove things wrong, yes, if something mm -hmm. comes out mm -hmm. which contradicts each other. Or is there just some hidden misconceptions, which I liked a lot about your lecture? Yeah. Um, nevertheless, uh, I guess, because I don't know you, <laughs> um, when you uh, started to decide to become a mathematician, you probably didn't think about mathematics that way. So what was the thing which, which draw you uh, to become a mathematician? So when I, it was not the Banachtarski paradox. No, so I, I never, sure. I never heard of that so when, <laughs> before I started to, to, to be interested in mathematics. I decided to, to become a mathematician rather late. So I'm not one of these people who, I don't know, at age 13 or 15 knew that um, he or she was going to be a mathematician mm. and could think of nothing else. I, I was interested in different things which all had in common the fact that I like I like two things in mathematics. I like the beauty of it. I think we are really dr driven by aesthetics. And um, the other thing I like is the amazing liberty. So in mathematics, there's nobody who tells you what to do and how to do it, uh, unless you have a bad teacher in school. Nobody tells you how to do And if a teacher tells you something in the math course, you don't have to believe him or you don't have to believe her because either he can prove it for you and prove it with such convincing arguments that you yourself in the end agree with it or you just don't believe it and uh, and that's what I that's the first thing I like about it is this liberty um, you don't have to follow you, you don't have to to, uh, to follow the goals of uh, of some application that forces unpleasant questions upon you you choose the question that you really like to solve and not only you solve questions but you build your own you build your own theories if you like so to me the attraction of mathematics is the same as the attraction of uh, learning languages. So I think uh, it's often said that mathematics is the language of the universe, or that I, I think this is a bit um, arrogant, maybe. But but basically, in, today in the natural sciences, this is more or less a true fact that most of natural sciences are expressed in the language of mathematics. So I think of myself as the linguist, then the linguist of this language of the universe. So I don't have to study the universe; I have to study the language that we use or the thoughts that we use to describe it. And I'm here to ask myself, well, um, if, if when we think about science, we think in mathematical terms, then perhaps our thought process itself is what we should study. Because perhaps the way we think about the universe um, influences much more what we know than the universe itself influences what we know. Yes. So this is a question, what kind of model you take for uh, a good starting point to think about the universe? Yes, or even what, is, what, are, what are the possible models? Yes. And what are the limitations? Yeah, it's even better to have several models. I exactly. see that. So, what, yeah. what, uh, if, uh, if an alien, if, uh, if a little green man from Mars had a theory about the universe, would it be completely different from ours because his brain is completely different? Mm. And would it be describing the same realities? And if he, if, if he were... Would it be in the same terms and would you come to the same conclusions? Yeah, uh, that was really interesting. Thank you that you took the time here in Dresden to talk to me. Thank you, it was a real pleasure.